Psalm 122, Song of Ascents of David. This is God's holy word. I rejoiced with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing in your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built like a city that is closely compacted together. That is where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to praise the name of the Lord according to the statute given to Israel. There, the thrones for judgment stand, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. May there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels. For the sake of my brothers and friends, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your prosperity. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. This past week, I read in the news, Canadian officials condemned a terrorist attack in Jerusalem on Wednesday after a young Canadian was killed in a series of explosions. Two blasts went off near bus stops in the city at the height of the morning rush hour, killing the Canadian and injuring at least 18, officials said. The first explosion happened at a bus stop on the edge of Jerusalem while the second went off about a half hour later in remote, a settlement in the city's north. There is no peace in Jerusalem. In this fallen world, there is no physical city of peace. The name Jerusalem has the Hebrew word for peace, shalom, as its root word. But to understand how Jerusalem is and might be a city of peace, we need to think biblically and think through God's word together. Because in terms of just a physical city, there is no peace. In Jerusalem. In the early 1980s, I remember reading about a husband and wife who were about to enter their retirement. Uh, They were British, a British couple. They spent a huge time, amount of time researching what would be what was the most peaceful, secure place to live on the face of the planet. They would find out where that place was, and that's where they were going to live out their days. After all their investigations, they finally settled on the perfect place. And they moved to some islands off the coast of southern Argentina, the Falkland Islands. And a few months later, in April 1982, war was declared between Great Britain and Argentina. There is no physical city of peace in this fallen world. But we've come now to the last part of Psalm 122, 
And these verses 6 through 9 are all about peace. The word, that Hebrew word shalom, is mentioned three times. These are very beautiful verses in the Hebrew language. You don't even need to know Hebrew, you just need to hear the words and you can hear a little bit of the beauty, which is the reflection, I think, of the beauty of peace itself. The word for pray here is sha'al. The word for peace is shalom. Jerusalem is Yerushalayim. The word for secure is shalah. The opposite is of that word is found in Job 3.26 when Job says, and you think of his life and circumstances, I have no peace. I have no quietness. I have no rest, but only turmoil. And in verse 7, the word translated in the NIV security is the word shalva, which means quietness. Better a dry crust with peace and quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. These are beautiful verses reflective of the beauty of peace. Sha'al, shalom, Yerushalayim, shalah, shalva. We've already seen the joy of traveling to Jerusalem, verse 1. The joy of going to worship with the people of God. We've seen in the middle verses, verses 3 through 5, the blessing of being in Jerusalem. And I hope you remember from last time that we need to see this passage in the context of the whole of the Bible. And this helps us in many ways. It helps us not only to understand properly the Old Testament and not come to the Old Testament in a merely physical, materialistic, external way, but in a spiritual way. And it helps us as New Testament Christians. And as I mentioned last time, maybe for some of you here who have been singing the Psalms for a while or for people who come as visitors, what are you doing singing about Jerusalem all the time? This is a prayer, beloved, not so much for the physical city of Jerusalem, but for the covenant people of God, for the church. That word church and the idea of church, the reality of church, is not just a New Testament thing. In Acts 7.38, in Stephen's speech, he refers to the church in the wilderness. There has always been a church. Many theologians speak of the church of Abel, going all the way back to the early chapters of Genesis. I think we can see even in this psalm that the physical city of Jerusalem is not what the writer has in view. It was not Jerusalem as a geographical destination, but Jerusalem as a spiritual theological, gospel destination, a church destination that was in view. Jerusalem is mentioned three times, verse 2, verse 3, and verse 6. But at the beginning and the end of the psalm, I wonder if you've noticed the change in language. What do we read surrounding those three references to the city of Jerusalem? 
in verse 1, I rejoiced with those who said to me, let us go where? To the house of the Lord. Yahweh, the covenant God. And how does the psalm end? For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your prosperity. It's not just Jerusalem as a geographical place. It is because there God chose for his name to dwell. There would be his temple and all that that symbolized and signified. The Old Testament temple was a picture of Christ and his church in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. It was wrong for people in the Old Testament in a magical, superstitious way simply to cry, the temple, the temple, the temple. What was the reality? It's always the Messiah and his people. Christ, the cornerstone, the foundation, the living stone. You have come to Jesus, the living stone. And you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We must see then again the spiritual meaning of Jerusalem as the church. Wherever now today the church is found, Jesus, again, as we saw last time, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, a time is coming when true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. Spiritual Jerusalem is Christ and the gospel. We didn't mention this last time. I didn't go into it very deeply, but in Galatians chapter 4, the apostle Paul actually teaches exactly on this point. How are we to understand Jerusalem? How are we to understand Jerusalem, the city, and Jerusalem's spiritual significance in the gospel and in the church? Listen to what he says. This is Galatians 4.21. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as the result of a divine promise. These things are to be taken figuratively. The word there is where we get our English word allegory. We need to watch out for the allegorical interpretation of Scripture, that we go to passages in the Scripture and try to make every little detail mean some other kind of spiritual thing. We are not to engage in the allegorical interpretation of Scripture, and yet we are to interpret properly allegorical Scripture. And this is exactly what Paul is saying. These, this is an allegory. These things are allegories. And then he explains. The women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia, and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. How is that the case? Wasn't Moses and the giving of the law of Mount Sinai part of the covenant of grace from Genesis 3.15? Yes. But if you want to take the law without the Messiah, without faith in the Messiah, 
and you're just trying to don't do this and do this to be right with God. That's back to Adam in the covenant of works and its slavery. But then listen to verse 26. But the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother. This is the spiritual significance of Jerusalem. The Jerusalem that is above, the gospel, the good news in Messiah Jesus. If the Son sets you free, you're free indeed. And because we know and are part of the Jerusalem that is above, now you, like Isaac, are children of promise, Galatians 4.28. That means that in another sense, even now as we worship here on the earth as Christians, there is a heavenly connection. Hebrews 12, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn who are written, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. And as we saw last time, because there is a Jerusalem that is above the gospel. And even now, as we have a connection in that mystical way to the heavenly Jerusalem, even as we live and worship on the earth, there is yet to come the new heavens and the new earth, the eternal home of all the saints with God in glory. Revelation 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Jerusalem, in the fullest and most final sense, is the new heavens and the new earth. I hope we see all these spiritual significances of Jerusalem. The Jerusalem that is above the gospel. The heavenly Jerusalem even now in glory, and the new Jerusalem coming at the last great day. But we're not in heaven yet. We're not in heaven yet. Jerusalem that is above the gospel is free. We are free in Christ. We are free from the guilt of sin, from its penalty. We are free from bondage to sin its power, its reigning power over us, Romans 6. But we are not yet free from the presence of sin. And because that's true, we must pray for the peace of Jerusalem. For the fullness of peace that only the gospel can bring. Peace first with God. Our sins were against us and separated us from God, but God was in Christ, reconciling us to himself. Peace with God and peace from God through faith in Jesus, the Prince of Peace. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. So as we pray in Jesus' name, according to Psalm 122, 
What are we commanded to do? Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. In the first place, that means pray that people would be saved and truly know and trust Christ. Do you have a list somewhere of people that you're praying for to be saved? Maybe it's just a mental list, and that's fine. But it doesn't hurt sometimes to write those names down so that we can be reminded to pray for the lost, those who have no peace. There is no peace for the wicked, the Bible says. Pray for the salvation of physical Jews. How often do we do that? And I think we should. In that sense, pray for the peace of Jerusalem, the real peace that will come as the physical descendants of Abraham follow their father in believing in Messiah. Pray that the Jews would be Jews indeed. As Paul says in Romans 2, a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor a circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. Pray for the Jewish nation. Pray for Jews scattered across the world, that they would own their Messiah. Salvation is from the Jews. Secondly, as we pray for people to be saved, and particularly for the Jews, pray for peace with God through faith for those in the visible church. We are the Jerusalem. But not everyone in the church is of the church. When Paul writes in Romans 9, 6, not all Israel is Israel, that applied both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Not all Israel is Israel. Not all Jerusalem is truly at peace with God. And as we've had a baptism this morning, pray for our covenant children, especially, that they would know peace with God in their lives. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into the grace in which we now stand. Thirdly, to pray for the peace of Jerusalem means also then, even for Christians, especially for Christians, pray for the peace, purity, and prosperity of the church. The peace, the security, the prosperity of the people of God in every place in the world and in our own congregation. Matthew Henry said, the peace and welfare of the gospel church 
particularly in our own land, is to be earnestly desired and prayed for by every one of us. We are here as we have the call in verse 6, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We are called to be praying for the saints. Ephesians 6, 19, pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayer and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. And the saints here are identified, aren't they? The end of verse 6, as those who love the Lord. May those who love you be secure. That's a basic biblical definition of a Christian. Do you love the Lord? 1 Corinthians 16, 22 says if someone doesn't love the Lord, God's curse abides on that person. But listen, that very identification of a Christian as someone who loves the Lord means that we are subject to attacks of our peace. Jesus said, the world will hate us because we love him. We are not above our master. That's always true of the world and the church, though it is more or less visible at times. And so, of course, we pray for peace from those outside the church who would be seeking in one way or another, to one degree or another, to persecute the church. This is what Paul has in mind in 1 Timothy 2. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority. Why? That we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. The very fact that we love the Lord means that we should pray for the peace of Jerusalem when the world is going to try to disturb that peace in its persecution. Pray for the persecuted church. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem means pray for the persecuted church. Continue, Hebrews 13, 3, continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. What a level of prayer that would be. But it's what we're called to. As we pray for Jerusalem, we pray for the persecuted church. But here the prayer, if you notice in verse 7, may there be peace within your walls. Here the prayer is for peace within the walls. How terrible it is when the church is a house divided. What a sad spectacle when in the Bible we read about peace, we sing about peace, we preach about peace, but there is no peace. Spurgeon said, not peace at any price. Jesus came not to bring peace but a sword. Some divisions are right and necessary. He said, not peace at any price, but peace at the highest price. A peace purchased by Christ's own death. That's the highest price. And a peace pursued by Christians as such a great good in the church. Not peace at any price, but peace at the highest price. Colossians 3.15, Paul says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. 
since as members of one body you were called to peace and be thankful. Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Romans 12, 18, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And certainly included in everyone are fellow believers in the church. We should especially be praying for peace in the church. The entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself, it says in Galatians 5. And then Paul needs to say to this church, words that should shock us. If you bite and devour each other, I've had to deal with it once in my ministry. Biting. Literal biting. By an adult. Can you imagine? Someone who just got so angry and was so upset that there was biting involved. That's shocking. But that's what Paul is saying. Not literal physical biting. I think. There's nothing new under the sun. The different ways that we can, this is actually how Christians can engage with it. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. That's what produces it. The desires of the flesh. I want, but I don't get. And that causes the biting and devouring. No, James 3 says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in humility that come from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes down from heaven is, first of all, pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And from verse 8, Just take a note of verse 8. For the sake of my brothers and friends, I will say, peace be within you. Remember who you are. For the sake of my brothers and friends. One looser translation has it, for the sake of family and friends, I will say, peace be within you. Those aren't two groups. It isn't intended to be describing two groups. Well, some people in the church are my brothers, and others are my friends. These are two ways to describe all the people of God together. Brothers and sisters who are friends. That's the church. It ought to be the church. May it be more and more true that we don't just have some kind of intellectual, mental, legal connection to each other. Yes, I know that other Christians are my brothers and sisters in Christ. 
but that we would be friends. Real traveling, as the King James Version has the word here, companions. For the sake of my brothers and companions. And I love that word in English. I love the etymology, the derivation of that word. It means to be with bread, to share with your bread with someone. It has the French word pain in it. With bread. And you know the fellowship that we have around tables and meal, fellowship meals. How wonderful it was to have that fellowship meal again for the first time in a long time. For the sake of my brothers and sisters who are my friends, my companions, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Now let's just look at verse 9, the last verse, because this is very important. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your prosperity. You see how there's been a move from prayer to what? To practical action. I will seek your prosperity. It's a very intense word, Jeremiah 29, 13, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart, God says. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Seek its prosperity. Ora et labora. Pray and work. Do you pray for people to be at peace with God? We've considered the different ways that we're to pray for. Do you pray for people to be at peace with God? Well, then let me ask you this. Do you speak to them about God? Do you, do you make the most of opportunities that you have to speak a word for Christ to people? Do you see how praying is here just seamlessly translated into practical action? Do we pray for the persecuted church? I wonder if we have practical ways to show our love and our concern or our help. Do we pray to be at peace with one another in the church? Well, here's where it really gets practical. Then do you speak the truth in love? Wounds from a friend can be trusted. Do you go to your brother or go to your sister? We cannot do more than pray until we have prayed. But then we need to go and live out those prayers in practical ways. Do you repent of ways that the peace of Jerusalem has been disturbed or fractured? Do you ask for forgiveness? Do you grant forgiveness? Romans 14, 19, Paul says, Therefore, let us make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. Is that hard? Yes. Do we have an adversary that prowls around who's looking for a foothold? Yes. He hates a church at peace. Is it hard? Yes. Is it impossible? No. No. We need, as we sing this psalm, to remember Christ. 
we need to remember that Christ very likely sang this psalm as he made his last trip to Jerusalem for the Passover. And what did those words, what did these words of Psalm 122 mean for him? For the sake of the house of the Lord. Well, back up. For the sake of my brothers and friends, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your prosperity. What did that mean for Jesus to sing that? It meant that he would die outside the gate on a cross, bearing your sin and your shame so that you could be at peace with God and be given the Holy Spirit of God. And the fruit of the Spirit is peace. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. There is healing. And there is peace for the church looking to Jesus Christ. Christ died for our peace. In every gospel sense of that beautiful word, may we pray for it and may we pursue it. The very last sermons of one well-known Puritan preacher were on the topic of how divisions among Christians in his day might be healed. His name was Jeremiah Burroughs. And his book was called The Irenicum. It comes from the Greek word for peace. The whole title is Irenicum, To the Lovers of Truth and Peace, Heart Divisions Opened in the Causes and Evils of Them, with Cautions that We May Not Be Hurt by Them, and Endeavors to Heal Them. Burroughs was greatly concerned by the divisions and disruptions he saw believers experiencing with their brothers and sisters in Christ. And so his very last sermons before his death were on this topic of peace in the church. One reviewer says he explains when a person should plead his conscience in light of peace in the church. When do I plead my conscience and when do I not? He provides rules to know in what areas we are to bear with our brethren. He shows that, quote, every difference in religion is not a differing religion. How helpful that is. Every difference in religion is not a differing religion. He discusses the role of pride, self-love, Envy, anger, rigidity, rashness, willfulness, inconsistency, jealousy, contentiousness, covetousness, and gossip in division. He concludes that the answer for division does not lie in blanket tolerance of all religions, nor in a compromising attitude towards sin, but in a biblical striving for peace. This is what he said. Peace is precious to me. 
I feel the sweetness of it. And I am willing to do what I can to honor it. The public conflicts, contentions, and disturbances in church and commonwealth are very grievous. My aim is peace, which I shall never cease endeavoring and praying for.